Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer at iHeartRadio, and I love all things tech. And today's topic goes by many names, like chroma key, or blue screen, or green screen. The inventor of this technology developed it for film, and that pun was unintentional, you know, developed for film, but I'm going to I'm going to run with it. Today, we use this technology in film, in television, on Twitch streams and Zoom calls, I mean, all over the place. And in the old days, you weren't likely to encounter a green screen unless you were inside a movie studio, like inside a soundstage. But today, there are a lot of folks who have a green screen just stashed in their home office. So today, I want to cover this technology, its history and development, and how it works. Now, before I get into the history, which, as I'm sure most of you know, is my modus operandi, let's give a quick overview of what this technology actually does. So basically, it's a system that allows a creator to insert images typically a background. That's your standard use of this. And you do it into a shot that otherwise isn't actually in that location. So it could be a static image or the new image might be in motion itself. So it might be video or film. This technology allows creators to shoot in locations they might otherwise have trouble getting to, like the bottom of the ocean or in outer space or in my old college dorm room because I was notorious for locking myself out. So when you do it well, it really enhances a scene. But when done poorly, it's incredibly distracting because it's so obvious that the people or, you know, whatever that are in the foreground of the shot aren't actually in whatever the environment is. But that's the basic idea. It's to create a composite, a combination of multiple shots into a single new shot so that the components from those two separate shots are combined as if they're in the same place at the same time. That's the basic idea. Now let's get to the history, you know, the part that everyone really came here for. But before we even get into the development of it, we need to think about the early days of film and talk about what film really is, because that's going to help us understand the evolution of the art form that made chroma key even a possibility. When I say film, in this case, I'm specifically referencing images shot on a long strip of plastic upon which there is a coating of light-sensitive chemicals. Actually, there are several layers of light-sensitive particles in that thin strip of film. You know, with modern film, you might be talking about 20 or more layers on that thin little piece of plastic. These layers include binding agents, you know, essentially gelatin, and grains of silver halide crystals, which react to the light. These are those photosensitive chemicals. And also some special molecules that bind with silver halide crystals so that they transfer energy from specific wavelengths of light, which we perceive as different colors. When light hits the silver halide crystals coating this plastic, there is a chemical reaction, and you can think of it as a chemical record of that instant of time. Whatever light hit the film is recorded there on this piece of plastic. So if you position the lenses so that you can direct specific light to that film, you can take a photograph. You must use some form of shutter 
to block out the light until you are ready to take your image. Then you open the shutter. This exposes that piece of film to the light that's being reflected off of whatever it is you're photographing. Remember, when we see things, we're seeing light bouncing off of that. And the color of the stuff we see is dependent upon which frequencies of light bounce off of that thing. So then the shutter closes on your camera and you've got your chemical record. And the shutter is necessary because, as I said, these chemicals react to light. If you just had this stuff exposed to light all the time, it would have already reacted. You would not be able to use it to take a photograph of anything. If you want to learn more about this process, which is fascinating, but really the process of photography is far enough out of the scope of this episode that I don't want to go into it much further, I do recommend you go to HowStuffWorks.com. That's my old employer. I don't technically work for HowStuffWorks anymore, but you can go to that website and you look up the article, How Photographic Film Works. It was written by Chuck Woodworth. And it's a great example of the How Stuff Works style. And it goes into the chemistry and physics of the photographic process. But we'll skim over the rest of that for the purposes of this episode. So now the film on the camera has a latent image on it. And it represents the moment in time the shutter allowed light to pass from the lens to hit the film. But in a film camera, a cinema camera, you're talking about a series of latent images. Motors pull this strip of film at a steady speed through the frame of the camera where the shutter opens and closes at a regular uh, frequency. And the standard speed of capturing images is 24 frames per second. So a film camera is capturing 24 photographs every second. The latent images need some processing in order to create something that can be fed through a film projector. The development process creates a negative image of the chemical record, and that means that the darkest areas of the image represent the spots where the film received the most light. It's the opposite of what you would expect, right? Anything that would be dark in a photograph will be light on a negative and vice versa. This negative has to be transferred onto another roll of film to create a positive image in a process that I'm also not going to cover because we need some time for actual topic, right? So when we watch a film, we have the perception that what we're viewing are moving objects up on a screen, but that is an illusion. What we're really seeing with true film is that it's a series of photographs. The projector is playing those photographs at the same speed that the film camera used to make them, 24 frames per second, usually. I mean, if you wanted to play stuff in slow motion, then you would shoot a film at a much higher frame rate, like 48 frames per second, but you would play it back at the standard 24 frames per second, and that would give you the slow motion effect. And back in the old days, cameras were hand cranked, so, you would get kind of 24 frames per second, but this would result in sort of that herky-jerky movement we associate with old movies. That was hand-cranked cinematography, and sometimes people would turn the, the crank a little faster or a little slower than others, so you don't really have a consistent experience there. Because the playback speed, especially if you're playing it in a modern projector, is going to be standard, even if the recording speed wasn't. But never mind all that. If you were to stop the projector's reels at any given moment in the playback of a film, you would see a still image. 
you would advance the reel by one frame and you would see the next image, the next photograph in that series. And you would likely be able to pick out how things are slightly different from the first frame you looked at and the next frame. And this is the same principle that's behind animation. If you've ever taken a pad of sticky notes and you drawn little figures on page after page after page so that when you flip the pages you get a simple little cartoon, then you've engaged in the same art form as great cinematographers. And maybe your work was even better than theirs. I'm not one to judge. Now, why would I go to the trouble to cover the basics of film? Well, it's because the very nature of film inspired certain people to experiment with it, to try stuff that would be impossible to replicate in a real-world setting, or at least it would be really difficult. Film wasn't a substitution for theater. In theater, you can create a few interesting effects. Generally, your options are limited to things like lighting tricks, maybe some creative sets or costumes, maybe an even a stage illusion or two, and perhaps some sound design. But with film, there were other possibilities. And one fellow who recognized those possibilities was the French filmmaker and illusionist Georges Méliès. He was born in Paris, you know, Paris, in 1861. Let that sink in for a moment. This man was born while the Civil War was going on in the United States. He became interested in stagecraft and magic, and by the 1890s, he was a successful stage magician. In 1895, he saw an early film exhibition made by the Lumiere brothers, and he became entranced by this new medium. His experience in illusions encouraged him to find ways to experiment with film to achieve new effects, stuff that wouldn't be possible to do in the real world. He was a special effects and film pioneer. He established methods to shoot slow motion, stop motion animation, to do dissolves, and tricks like superimposition and double exposure. Around 1898, Méliès had a really cool idea. He wanted to create a truly bizarre special effect in which an actor would appear to remove his own head on screen. But how would he accomplish this? Well, the secret was in shooting multiple exposures of the same reel of film. Typically, after you expose film to light, you want to avoid doing that again because you will interfere with that chemical record. You know, if you were to ever take photographs with a film camera and then someone were to open up the back of the camera and expose the, the film to regular light, you could potentially ruin shots that were already made, plus ruin the film for the next couple of shots. It's not something that you typically want to do. More light will cause further reactions, chemical reactions, on the actual plastic film, and your shot gets ruined. If you've ever used the cameras that don't quite line up the film properly at the very beginning or the very end, you might even notice that a couple of photos on those sections of the, the film roll have two sets of images superimposed on top of one another. And that's because that little section of film was exposed more than once. Melier did this on purpose. He would set up a shot and he would use a lens that had some of the lens blacked out so that light could not pass through that part of the lens. And we refer to this as a mat, M-A-T-T-E. And you can think of it like a mask for the lens. And that would mean a section of each frame corresponding to that part of the mat would remain unexposed to light. He would shoot the scene as rehearsed. Afterward, he would rewind the exposed film in the camera, feed it right back in, as if he was going to shoot something all for the first time. 
And he would then replace this mat with a new one. And the new mat would block out everything except the section that previously was unexposed. So in other words, the part that was black would now be clear, and the rest of the lens that was previously unblacked would be blacked. So you replace one mat with a different one. So he would then be able to film something totally new into this same roll of film. And this time, the camera would pick up a new scene. And by changing things between one section and the other, he could create weird effects like the head removal trick. It would appear as though all of this was shot at the same time on the same roll of film. But in fact, through careful control of where the light would go, Melier would use the same film twice or more to produce cool results. And if you want to see an example of what I'm talking about, and I highly recommend you check this out because it is amazing even today, go to YouTube and do a search for the short film Four Heads Are Better Than One. The creativity of this film, which, by the way, lasts less than a minute, is still astonishing. To say his experimental work was influential would be a gross understatement. Other filmmakers inspired by the work of Méliès tried new techniques that built upon the foundation he established. For example, filmmaker and documentarian Norman Dawn wanted to shoot films at historic buildings around California, but several of those buildings had been damaged or even partly destroyed. Other historic buildings had modern stuff like light poles in front of them. He didn't want that to be in the shot, so... He wanted to show the buildings as they had appeared in their original form before the decay, before modern technology had advanced into the area. So he came up with a really clever idea. Don placed a pane of glass between the camera and the scene he wanted to shoot. And on that pane of glass, he had paintings to enhance the scene. If a building's roof had caved in, he would frame up the shot and then have an artist paint a roof on the glass so that when viewed through the camera, the painting and the building behind it would line up and the building would appear to be whole again. Or he might want to cover up stuff like those telephone poles he would have an artist paint trees on the glass. So from the camera's perspective, the poles were hidden. His process also involved double exposures. This was an example of a matte painting, and he would claim credit for inventing this, and he even applied for a patent on it. But subsequent lawsuits established that other filmmakers were using similar approaches, and the patent office ultimately denied the claim. But matte paintings would become an important part of filmmaking from that point forward. One disadvantage to these early film effects was they required the camera to remain stationary through the whole process. You couldn't move the camera at all or else your shots wouldn't line up. So you wanted the camera to remain in one place through all of these different exposures. Another problem was that no action could cross the mat line because it would get cut off as it moved beyond that invisible, at least from the audience's perspective, line. Now let's move on up to 1918, when a guy named Frank Williams created the Williams Process, which honestly seems pretty convenient to me. The Williams Process allowed for more movement. It involved shooting actors against a solid background, such as a black or blue curtain, on very high contrast film. The process sometimes required multiple transfers onto new film until you arrived at a black silhouette 
against a pure white background, the negative image of what you were shooting before. And this was called a holdout mat. The way these transfers typically would work is that you would put one strip of shot developed film into a camera. So you've already shot on it, but you're putting it through the camera again. And you would put a, a second strip of film uh, that is unshot. It's unprocessed. No, no lights hit it and put it right up against the first developed piece of film. You would shine light through the camera and you would let it just run. And this way you would uh, transfer the images from one strip to the other. And uh, this was called bypacking because you were putting two different pieces of film through the camera to achieve this process. And you could also do this not just with developed film where you're making copies. You could do it with negatives. You could do it in a way to increase contrast from copy to copy until you were able to create a holdout mat. Reverse printing the holdout mat creates a white silhouette on a black background or a cover mat. So now you've got a holdout mat and a cover mat. You would take the footage of a previously shot background. Let's say it's a foreboding forest. So you've shot your actors in a soundstage, but you want the background to be this really scary looking forest. And you would bypack a film camera with the background footage that you had shot and the black silhouette holdout mat of the actor's footage that you shot. Then you would transfer this combination to a third piece of unexposed film by, again, shining a light through those other two pieces. And because the background on the holdout mat is white... Uh, the light passes through it easily and it hits the previously shot background image. That comes through and gets copied onto the blank film. The silhouette of your actors is black. That prevents light from passing through. So the previously blank third piece of film now has a background image and this dark silhouette of actors moving through the frame. Then you would have to take that piece of film that has this black silhouette, and you have to bypack it with the original footage of the actor. Not the silhouette, but the actual actor footage. And now the real actor is on top of the silhouette and appears to actually be in front of whatever the background image is, in our case, the foreboding forest. Because this type of mat moves from frame to frame, it's called a traveling mat. And if you remember Fraggle Rock, you might remember traveling mat is the name of Gobo's uncle. Gobo, by the way, is another stage and lighting term. It stands for a template or stencil that controls the shape of a lamp's emitted light. So some of the Fraggles had uh, fun industry names, Gobo and Traveling Matt. When we come back, we will continue down the history of how Chroma Key came about. But first, let's take a quick break. Before the break, I was talking about the Williams process, but C. Dodge Dunning would improve upon the Williams process by using yellow light to shoot the actor in front of a blue screen, creating the Dunning process. And this was used extensively in the classic 1933 film King Kong. And it worked great for black and white film. Remember, this is before anyone was shooting on color. So, uh, although, I mean, there were ways of treating film to create color, but this was standard black and white film, so you didn't have to worry about the weird lighting. But if you wanted to shoot in color, that was going to cause, require other considerations. 
Around the same time, engineers were developing the optical printer, which really simplified the process of transferring images from one strip of film to another. Now, I talked about bypacking, but the optical process could be an alternative to that. It didn't eliminate it, but it was a different way to achieve the same thing. Essentially, an optical printer has a projector on one side and a camera on the other. The projector shoots out a projected image that then gets copied onto a new unexposed roll of film inside the camera. And it also allowed filmmakers to create new effects by changing the focal point of the camera or the distance between the projector and the camera. And rather than bypacking camera, you just use this process. You could get better results. The first mass-produced optical printer hit the market in the mid-1940s. It came from a company called Acme Dunn. In addition, filmmakers created rear projection backgrounds. So in these, actors would perform in front of a screen, like a projection screen, not a green screen or a blue screen. And behind that screen would be a, a film projector, and it would provide a projected background image. You could do this in place of the processes I've already described, putting your actors in front of a screen that shows whatever background you wanted. The background could be fairly static, but didn't have to be. You could include a background that was actually dynamic, showing movement. It could be a film in of itself. This was used a lot in shots where people were in vehicles and talking with one another. So rather than setting up a car on a trailer and shooting it in the real world with the camera on the trailer, or or worse yet, trying to figure out how to fit a camera onto a real moving car that's operated by an actor, you would typically have performers sitting in a stationary vehicle and the screen behind and sometimes to either side of them would display previously shot footage of scenery going by from the correct perspective as if the car were driving down the road. This wasn't necessarily convincing, mind you, but it was an interesting technique. In 1932, engineers created a process to produce films in color called, appropriately, Technicolor. Interestingly, in this process, images would be captured to three strips of black and white film at this stage. Is the tri-strip approach. This was not the original version of Technicolor. It was technically the fourth incarnation of the Technicolor technology, but it's the important one for our discussion. So how do you produce a color image if you're using black and white film as your medium? Well, first you have to shoot your footage, and inside an early Technicolor tri-strip camera, behind the lens was an optical cube, and it acted as a prism. Prisms break up incoming light into bands of frequencies, and you've likely had one, or played with one, or at least seen one. That's the kind of stuff, you know, light goes through it, and then it makes rainbows. You see a little rainbow pattern projected somewhere. This prism would break up the incoming light into three general bands that corresponded with red, green, and blue. Each of those bands of light would hit one of three strips of black and white film inside the camera. So one strip of film would be exposed to all the red light coming from a scene, one from all the green light coming from a scene, and one from the blue. The concentration of each color in the scene would affect how much light was hitting each strip of film, so you'd end up with three negatives of your scene that were all perfectly synchronized, all of them in black and white, but each with different levels of brightness 
for different objects. It all depended on what color the objects were in the scene. A red chair, for example, would appear as a very prominent image on the black and white film that was hit with the red light, while it would be less noticeable in the green and blue strips. Now you would develop the negatives and you would process the film, the three strips of film, and you would print them just as you would a regular black and white movie, and you would technically have three identical black and white sequences that only, well, not identical, because the brightness would be different between each, but they would be of the exact same shot. You would then process these film strips by dyeing each of them in their respective color. So you would literally end up with a red-tinted strip of film, blue-tinted strip of film, and a green-tinted strip of film. Then you would take these three dyed strips of film, and you would laminate them together, and you would print that to a new roll of film, and you would have a color motion picture, which was fairly accurate, although the technical process would evolve over time to become even more so. And the technicolor process is really what set the stage for the next part of our story. It's why I felt the need to even explain how it worked. Now we get to a guy named Lawrence Larry Butler. He was born in 1908, and he was actually a second-generation optical effects professional. His father, William Butler, had been a silent film actor who frequently appeared in D.W. Griffith films. Larry worked on several motion pictures in the 1930s before creating a new compositing process in 1940 for the film The Thief of Baghdad. In that film, Butler introduced a new special effect approach, and this would be the birth of the blue screen. Alright, so let's break down this process. It builds on Technicolor, as I mentioned. So with Technicolor, you get three prints of your shot, right? One for red, one for green, one for blue. If you created a solid backdrop in one of those three colors and shot something in front of that background, you could use that particular strip of film to create a traveling mat. Remember, the color would show up as very bright in your black and white film print because a lot of light is reflecting off of that particular color. Effectively, you could make a negative image of whatever the foreground was. The stuff you're shooting would be dark and the background would be bright. You would have to make sure that nothing in the scene had the same color, however, or else your traveling mat would effectively have holes in it because the color of the foreground would match the color of the background. Now, you've probably seen this if someone's ever worn a shirt that's the same color as whatever screen they're supposed to be standing in front of. The same thing would even happen in film. It's just that it would happen well in advance of anyone being able to see it happen, like see the effect of it because you had to do all this other processing. The other two strips of black and white film would have pretty dark backgrounds because the light projected onto them wouldn't match the color of the backdrop, right? Uh, and you could take the film of a background shot. This is called the background plate. So this is previously shot film of whatever it is, whatever setting you're planning on putting this stuff. And then you use the traveling mat against it in an optical printer, and that would produce a silhouette of the foreground action. And it's that black hole that's the shape of whatever it was you were shooting. You would take this new print in which you've got the silhouette of your action against the previously filmed backdrop and combine that with the processed color film to fill in that hole left by the traveling mat. So you've got this possibility now of creating a traveling mat by taking advantage of the Technicolor process, but then you have to make a decision. Which of the three colors should be the focus? 
whichever color you choose is going to determine what you can shoot because you can't have any objects or people in the scene that have that color on them or the traveling map won't work properly. This is what it, I mean when I say if you've ever seen someone on screen who's had a background effect bleed onto them because the color of clothing they're wearing was letting it happen, you've seen that issue. So Butler decided to go with blue as the backdrop color, largely because he determined it was a color far removed from skin tones. And he wanted to make sure that actors wouldn't match the color of the background and mess everything up. So as long as you weren't shooting anything blue in the foreground, you could use this process to make a composite image of the foreground action against a different background. He also would combine the blue negative image with the green positive or processed image to create a better traveling mat, something a more solid silhouette in other words. Butler's contribution led to him winning an Academy Award for this process. Still, this was an incredibly time-consuming approach. I'm sure you've gathered that just from my explanation of it, because you had to shoot your sequence, you had to create the traveling mat negative, you had to combine that against the background footage, and you had to combine that combination of the background image and the traveling mat with the fully processed color image, and then ultimately come up with a... A composite piece of film. It gave filmmakers way more options when making movies. It allowed them to shoot stuff inside a soundstage rather than whatever location they would have to go to, and it even opened up locations that would otherwise be impossible, but it did require a lot of post-production time and work. It also required a close attention to lighting, Otherwise, you would end up with blue halos around people, and that was pretty darn distracting. In fact, all of these different approaches required really good lighting, sometimes really intense lighting. So it would also create pretty uncomfortable shooting conditions that would get really hot in those sound stages. So while it was phenomenal technology, it required a lot of finesse to use it properly, and a human touch was absolutely necessary through every stage of the process. Now, over the next several years, really decades, movies benefited from this technology. The tech allowed filmmakers to do all sorts of neat things. Not only could they make it seem like actors were in places that would be hard or difficult to shoot in or places that maybe don't even exist, they also allowed for stuff like the incorporation of animation and live action in a way that wasn't really possible before. I'll get back to that again in a second. But in the early 1950s, Eastman Kodak created the color motion picture film that simplified the process of shooting on color significantly. So rather than exposing three strips of black and white film to different bands of light and then processing them to create a composite color image, this new film actually contained all the layers that corresponded to blue, green, and red. They each had essentially filters and uh, dyes in them. And each layer effectively had its own silver halide crystals and respective dyes and streamlining the process for shooting on and developing color film. You just had to have one strip, not the tri-strip approach of Technicolor. And it really changed things. Uh, also, by tweaking the blue screen process, some inventors were able to get spectacular results. This gets us back to that live action and animation discussion. That would be uh, Petro Vlahos, who was the engineer who worked on a little film called Mary Poppins in the early 1960s. Vlahos wanted to improve upon the technology that Butler had created, and one of the issues he sought to address was that the color blue used for blue screens wasn't a specific wavelength of light. 
you got to remember that the wavelength of light, or if you prefer the, the frequency of light, the two are related, determines the light's color, the color that we perceive. And the wavelengths corresponding to the blue screens of the day range from 435 nanometers to 500 nanometers. And that meant any color blue that fell in or near that range was off limits for use in a scene. Vlahos figured there had to be a better way, and he decided to use a different backdrop color entirely, yellow. But not just any yellow. He wanted a precise yellow, the yellow that comes from sodium gas discharge lamps. When you excite sodium gas, essentially when you energize it with electricity, the gas gives off a distinct yellow light with a wavelength of 589 nanometers. As long as nothing in the camera frame matches that precise shade of yellow, you could have all sorts of colors in the shot, including different shades of yellow, and not have to worry about skimping on things like blue costume pieces. Paired with this was a customized camera that contained a prism that could isolate the 589 wavelength of light. Vlahos was able to produce an incredibly precise and accurate traveling mat this way, which meant Disney could place actors on any separate background without worrying about the effect showing at the seams. In fact, in one sequence, Mary Poppins is wearing a hat that has this veil-like material on it, and you can actually see the background, the animated background, through the veil, and that's because of the precision of this approach. There was one small hiccup, which was that Vlahos only had one working prism that could isolate this specific band of light, this 589 nanometer band of light. So they only had one sodium vapor camera as a result. Now, when we come back, we're going to look at the further evolution of this technology, including how it has changed once the digital realm became a reality. But first, let's take another quick break. I've stuck with the film world for this podcast so far, but I also have to talk about the use of chroma key technology in the world of live television. See, Mary Poppins came out in 1964, but the first use of chroma key on live TV was in the late 1950s. This is the same technology that would become the basis for TV weather reports, where the meteorologist stands in front of a wall, which seems to have a dynamic map on it that can change from one image to the next, but if the process I've described required so many steps, if you had to do so much post-production on the film, how could you take that same basic idea and make it work in the realm of television in real time, live broadcast? Frank Gaskins and Mitt Altman led this effort at NBC in the 1950s. They created a television camera approach to chroma key and tested it out in 1957 with a live broadcast of matinee theater. The specific story they chose to serve as the first experiment here was an adaptation of The Invisible Man, and that was fitting because the 1933 film adaptation of The Invisible Man had relied heavily on the old Williams process. The live television version initially relied on two cameras. One camera would capture a background image. The other camera would be the foreground camera. That would be for all the action in the sequence. And behind all this action would be a blue backdrop. Combining these two sets of images simultaneously in a device called a chroma key amplifier would create a live composite video feed. Engineers at RCA created the actual technology, and I think it's best if I just quote directly from the 1958 edition of the journal Electronic Age, 
that describes this process. So here's a quote. A switching signal, or a color key, used in association with the special effects amplifier controls the signals sent out over the air. The switching signal is in turn created by the camera photographing the live action in front of the blue screen. While the camera is scanning the blue screen, the switching device automatically activates the second camera, which projects the background. When the scanning signal reaches an area covered by the live actors, the switching device turns off the camera projecting the background material and transmits the action. Now that's the end of that quote. You could also feed images directly to the chroma key amplifier. It didn't have to be a live video from a second camera. So you could provide an image like a map, allowing a meteorologist to stand in front of an otherwise blank blue or green screen and gesture at various regions. The audience at home would see the meteorologist appearing to stand in front of the map, or maybe a summary of the forecasted weather for the week, and not just a blue screen or a green screen. Around the 1970s, that's when we started to see a gradual shift, particularly in television, from blue screens to green ones. Part of that was because of a very slow transition into digital technology. It would become more important as digital cameras became a thing. Digital cameras were better attuned to doing this with greens rather than with blues, although you can do either. But another big reason was just that people don't tend to wear a lot of green, whereas blue was a pretty, and still is, a pretty popular color. And once in a while, someone on camera would forget that they're wearing blue, and then they'd step in front of a blue screen, and suddenly their jacket or their shirt or their tie or whatever would become part of the background image. Back to film for a moment. We're going to leave TV for a second. In 1980, a guy named Richard Edland, who worked on a little film called The Empire Strikes Back, made another big contribution to the chroma key process. Edland developed a quad optical printer, which both sped up the process for producing composite film shots and also brought the price down as well. I mean, if you think about it, saving time means saving money. He also developed a computer-controlled system of cameras, which allowed for very precise camera movements, and that meant you could create choreographed shots of foreground and background and composite them together and have them match up perfectly. It was also really effective for processing images that were shot with miniatures, which was done a lot in the original Star Wars series. So it was still a painstaking process, but now a lot more could be done on one piece of equipment per pass, as opposed to having to do a process on a piece of equipment, then do it again, and then again and again until you finally got whatever result you were after. Gradually, computer software would creep into the realm of film and video effects, and this leads us to a version of Chroma Key that I think is actually the easiest to understand. It's it's technically advanced, but the principle is simple. So let's say that you want to do a Twitch stream and you're playing a video game live and you want your viewers to see you sitting in front of the video game footage. So it wants to make a dynamic background of video gameplay behind you. So you go out and you buy a green screen and you set it up behind your gaming chair. You throw up some lights, more on that in a second, and you launch a program that will insert your video game capture as a custom digital background. Your viewers will see you sitting in front of a screen otherwise filled with, I don't know, Skyrim or Minecraft or the Untitled Goose Game or whatever it is you're playing. What's going on on a technical level? Well, the digital world is different 
from the analog world in lots of ways. But importantly for our discussion, it comes down to how in the digital world, everything ultimately boils down to numeric values. You or I could have a debate about whether a particular color is aquamarine versus aero blue versus blue green versus dark cyan or whatever it may be. But in the digital world, every color ultimately has a numeric value. Assuming whatever we're looking at is a solid color, you could designate that solid color with a specific numeric value in computer software and then replicate it or immediately identify it within any scene. You might see where I'm going here. With video software, you can designate a specific color from one video source. Uh, This specific color is the chroma, as it were. And this is the color you want to replace or key out. The video software analyzes information that's coming from, say, a digital camera feed into your computer. And it looks for any signals that map to the value or values of the color or colors you've picked. Most software lets you fine-tune this so you can adjust the settings to hone in on the specific shade of green or blue or whatever it is that you plan to key out. Anything that matches that value or range of values then gets turned into a transparent video layer. The secondary image, in our case, the video game footage that we're creating as we're playing this game shows through this transparent layer. And you can actually think of the foreground video as an overlay on top of the digital background layer, the the video game footage. Anything transparent in that overlay will show the background through it. The solid stuff, presumably you, the Twitch player, will block the background image. So viewers will be able to see their favorite Twitch streamer sitting in front of a video game. The software does all the work for you, creating the composite video feed that the viewer sees. That software, by the way, isn't Twitch itself. Twitch is a video streaming platform, but to actually do these sort of effects, you'd need to use some other piece of software, such as some version of Open Broadcaster Software, or OBS. And there are a lot of different versions of video broadcasting software available for folks to play with, from free stuff to professional-grade stuff. This type of versatility is the kind of stuff that previously you would have had to have worked in, like, a TV studio to have access to. But now, anyone with a sufficiently beefy computer can run this kind of operation. For this to work well, you want to have really good lighting, both for the foreground and for the background drop. You want the lighting on the green screen you're using to be nice and even, and you want to eliminate any shadows, because if you're casting a shadow on the green screen, the camera uh, will pick up that part of the green screen as being a darker color. And it might even be dark enough that the video software doesn't identify it as the color that you want to key out. So in those cases, you would get these weird video artifacts on screen. As a result, it'd be really distracting. So ideally, you want lights that'll illuminate the green screen evenly and are dedicated just for that purpose. Uh, If you're lighting yourself directly from the front, you're not using a ring light or anything like that, then you're going to be casting a shadow behind you, unless you're Peter Pan, in which case, I guess you just think happy thoughts. Now, This flies for stuff like Zoom meetings and Twitch streams, but when it comes to professional-grade film, it's not really up to snuff. Software can do a bulk of the work, but good old human effects artists are still needed to make sure everything is coming out well, 
They can step in and do some quality control. They can tweak things. They can fix any issues that pop up. And that pays off. You've probably seen a movie that had phenomenal attention to this process and the effects are top notch. And you've probably seen other movies where due to whatever reason, maybe it was budget, maybe it was just the talent of the people working on it. You could tell that such care wasn't given to the process and it shows in the final product. I still think films like Jurassic Park, I'm talking about the original Jurassic Park, hold up pretty darn well. And part of that is that the movie depended on a mixture of different effects. Some of them were computer generated and keyed in. Some were robotic effects, but a lot of this has to do with the fact that the effects team as a whole took tremendous care to produce results that were really convincing to the eye. And that's the story behind chroma key and green or blue screen technology. It's a super interesting approach to creating a composite moving image. And frankly, there's going to be a lot of other topics around this that I can go into. I could probably talk even more about optical printers, for example, and the various uh, approaches to film processing. And you can see that while the actual chroma key process is very different between film and digital video, the basic idea of replacing one color or one element in a shot with something from a totally different source remains the same. It's the same underlying principle, no matter what the actual process is. If you guys have suggestions for future topics I should cover here on Tech Stuff, whether it's a specific technology, a company in tech, a personality in tech, maybe it's just a trend in tech in general, reach out to me. Let me know what I should cover. You can get in touch through Twitter or Facebook. The handle for both of those is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.